This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. Today, the latest on the power and telecommunication outages that are ongoing for parts of the wheat belt that were battered by those storms last week. Also keeping tabs on that slow-moving tropical low in the north of the state, uh, which has already delivered some rain to the Kimberley, and we'll take a look at where the rain may fall uh, for this week too. Halls Creek residents will be hoping they don't get too much more rain. Over 160 millimetres fell in their gauges over the weekend. And a WA-based truckie had to get evacuated from the Vic River Roadhouse, about 300 kilometres from the WA border. How do you reckon that you got $480,000 worth of truck there, plus your trailers and freight? But at the end of the day, it's replaceable, sort of. We aren't, and to be there for five days already with the water still rising and the thought of being there for another two weeks is not not doable mate no it's just just not good enough so you've got to sacrifice uh your truck for a bit of living i guess you'll hear all the details of that evacuation shortly and being in the northern territory of course there are crocodiles involved in the story so keep listening for that after news headlines and across to the bureau uh, just after half past 12 today uh firstly though a shipment of sheep and cattle destined for the middle east is on its way back to Australia after being diverted from travelling through the Red Sea due to the region's deteriorating security situation. Over the weekend, the industry regulator, the Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, directed the WA-based exporter, Bassam Dabar, to immediately return the consignment to Australia. The MV Bahiza is loaded with around 15,000 sheep and 2,000 cattle, and is expected back in Australia at a port yet to be determined in about a week. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt says the welfare of the livestock on board the ship is the top priority. We want to make sure that animal welfare is always at the forefront of live exports, uh, whether we're talking about sheep or cattle. You'd be familiar, I'm sure, that our government went to the last two elections with a commitment to phase out uh, the export of live sheep, and that's a commitment we intend to carry out and uh, maintaining animal welfare is a key reason for doing so. I should say, in, in, in phasing out that trade, we also see massive opportunities to increase onshore processing of sheep in Australia, which means more jobs mm. for Australians, better regional economies. Yep. But the animal welfare issue is always central. Mark Harvey-Sutton is the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council. Mark, what were the options available to this vessel? Well, the original plan was to send the, the vessel to Israel and Jordan through the Red Sea. Uh, and I think we have to remember that, Belinda, because in the context of things, that was what the, the original destination was. Uh, and I think we should remember those vessels uh, and consignments have a right to navigate the Red Sea. Uh, we service markets that are located in the Red Sea. Uh, and indeed, freedom of navigation is uh, a right of shipping companies. Uh, and indeed, that's why uh, we have a multinational force uh, in the Middle East, in that region at the moment, which Australia is contributing to, to try and secure that right. So that's what's caused this diversion. And when you have a consignment approved with the Department of Agriculture who regulates our industry, 
they'll give approval for one set of circumstances to, to take place. And when that plan changes, you need to get reapproval. So they did initially head towards South Africa, but that was their best route to go to, to keep their options open. And I understand that that was one possibility. Uh, another possibility would be to uh, potentially go to another market or to return to Australia. Uh, and they were the options that the department's been assessing. And they made a call based on animal welfare and the safety of crew on board uh, that the best, best option is to return to Australia. Why is that the best option? Look, uh, when uh, a vessel goes, you, you take a certain amount of fodder for the animals. And of course, repatriation or returning to Australia is obviously a complex exercise, uh, given Australia's very robust biosecurity frameworks. So the fact that the vessel has not docked in any other port, uh, has not taken on supplies in any port, means that the biosecurity risk can be managed and there is sufficient supplies on board for the animals uh, to make sure that their welfare is assured. Has this ever happened before where a live... A livestock ship on its way to a Middle Eastern market, almost at its destination. It's been two weeks at sea, has been turned around and diverted back to Australia? There are circumstances where vessels have been returned to Australia, but in those instances, those vessels have been closer to Australia. So, for instance, a number of years ago, a vessel had mechanical issues not far off Australia, and so they had to come back to port. Uh, and they had to exercise all the relevant biosecurity processes. So I think it would be fair to say that I don't think a vessel has gone so far uh, and then been returned, but that's okay. We're very confident that all the risk assessments have been made. On the country, I'm catching up with Mark Harvey Sutton, who's the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council, and talking about this livestock vessel, which was on its way, Uh, to markets in the Middle East and has been turned around uh, and heading back to Australia as we speak this afternoon. Mark, why was the ship diverted away from this area? Was it under attack? Was it, you know, the Houthi rebels have been attacking commercial vessels in this region since about November with, you know, missile attacks. So was it attacked in any Way? No, not at all. No, it was no. That, that that's not right. It was a decision made by the uh, exporter and the shipping company that the the safest option was to not proceed through the Red Sea. But it was not attacked at all. But it was deemed a security issue to turn the vessel, and that's what it, what has happened here. Well, should it have been approved in the first place? Then, I mean, the Houthi rebels have been sort of started these attacks in November. So why was this ship and this route approved by the regulator, the Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, because it took off in early January, January the 5th? There have been a number of risk mitigation factors that exporters to the Red Sea have been putting in place, things like making sure that contingency markets uh, can be accessed, uh, carrying extra fodder on board. Uh, And at the time uh, that the voyage departed, it was assessed by the department that It could securely get to its destination. As we know, Belinda, the situation in the Middle East is very fluid and volatile, and things did change during the duration of the voyage after it departed. But I don't think uh, it would be fair to say that the department made a mistake in approving it. 
obviously that I can't speak on their behalf and I can't speak to how that decision was made, but I do know that they are going through appropriate processes to assess that. And then of course, when things change, the department has also gone through appropriate processes. And that's why these processes are in place, Belinda. We can deal with situations like this. And, you know, I think ultimately the thing we have to remember is the reason we supply these markets in the Middle East is food security. Uh, And we are obviously when things are uh, heightened in a geopolitical sense, that becomes more acute for these markets. So I think it's a responsibility that exporters take very seriously. And I guess the best thing to say is that things changed. So what happens to the livestock when they eventually arrive back in Australia? What are the options? Uh, There's a couple of things that can happen. It can be re-exported or perhaps they will be processed domestically. But that all needs to be confirmed. That's That's a decision that the exporter will have to make in consultation with the department. And I'm not privy to those discussions, but there's certainly procedures and processes that can be put in place. uh, And that's what they'll be looking at at the moment. Yeah, they can't go back to farm, can they? Oh, absolutely not. No, and that's that's a very important point to make, Belinda. And, uh, you know, ultimately biosecurity is, uh, in addition to animal welfare, the highest priority here. And in ensuring that those animals can't go back to farm, that does make sure Australia's very robust and strong biosecurity status uh, is maintained. Mark Harvey Sutton with you this afternoon. He's the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council and bringing you the very latest on this livestock vessel, which has been told it needs to return from that uh, Red Sea area where the conflict is at the moment and head back to Australia, which is what it's doing at the moment, and to arrive back in Australia in about a week's time. Mark, are there any more livestock vessels on their way to this region or scheduled to leave shortly? Look, nothing has departed Australia since uh, this particular vessel. I'm sure there would be exporters potentially planning voyages. The the department has said they are going to assess those voyages on a case-by-case basis, and we believe that is very much the appropriate thing to do. I know that exporters are working very closely with the department on that, and we are also working with the department. Over the weekend, the RSPCA was calling on all live exporters to immediately implement a voluntary suspension of all live export voyages to destinations that are in or near regions of conflict. How appropriate is that? I think it's, uh, sadly, I think that's very inappropriate, Belinda, because... But why considering uh, the circumstances with these the attacks on commercial vessels in this region? As we know, the RSPCA has a mandate to stop live exports no matter what, and they do not have to deal with the implications. I think it is very advantageous and opportunistic of them to be using uh, what is a very tumultuous period globally to their advantage. Have no doubt we will be putting animal welfare and safety of people ahead of anything, but I think it is overly simplistic to simply say, well, we should stop uh, trading to this region. But isn't it getting uh, really expensive too, Mark? I mean, those insurance costs skyrocketing for ships who continue to go through that region. And even if you divert around you know, South Africa, the cost of that as well and the extra journey time to reach your destination, I mean, it's all getting very costly. How viable is it? 
Uh, well, that would be something that the exporters would have to make an assessment on. Uh, ALEC doesn't make commercial decisions, uh, but there is no doubt there would be additional costs because of this, and exporters will have to make those decisions. Now, we're waiting for Murray Watt, the Federal Agriculture Minister, to announce plans for a phase-out of the live sheep trade. Could this conflict in the Red Sea actually kill off the trade prior to the release of the government's phase-out plans? No, it won't do that. And we don't just supply the Red Sea uh, in the Middle East, Belinda. And as, as the Minister has been at pains to articulate, he wants this to be a very orderly process uh, and he is taking advice from his independent panel, which uh, we are awaiting the outcome from. But if this was to prompt or to speed up any political decisions, which we know is wrong and we continue to oppose, I think that would be very inappropriate. And ultimately, the issue that we have at the moment is making sure that we can maintain trade uh, and maintain animal welfare and the safety of the crew to the region. So, mm. I guess uh, this- the last thing you'd want, though, is one of these ships going into this region and uh, finding itself under attack. I mean, oh, that's the worst case scenario. That, 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 is, that is correct, Belinda, and that's why the Bahesia diverted. That was why they turned around. Let me assure you, the exporters take in, into account all of these factors, as do the shipping companies, uh, whether that's the exporter themselves or the shipping company they engage. All of these things are factors that they take into account. It's very complex, uh, but I can assure you that every consideration is being made around that. And you're right, that is not the situation that we want. And uh, I have every confidence that the, the processes that people are going through at the moment will ensure that that does not occur. With the phase-out of the trade just there in the background, I mean, is this the, the the last thing the industry really needed at this point, this situation in the Red Sea, the conflict there and the diversion of a ship back to Australia? I suspect uh, people living in the, in the region at the moment would be saying that a conflict was the last thing they needed as well. The world changed. It's a very dynamic geopolitical environment at the moment. We know that. But by the same token, the facts around the phase-out haven't changed. This was an industry that's had extraordinary animal welfare outcomes. The producers, particularly in WA, have been at pains to point to the economic importance and indeed the importance to the, the fabric of the communities that they live in. None of that has changed. We continue to oppose the policy. And ultimately, it's very important that the, the trade does continue. And, and Belinda, I remind you, we just had our first consignment go to Saudi Arabia uh, a couple of weeks ago. And that is very indicative of the fact that this is not a declining trade, uh, as those would opposed to it would have us believe. It points to the fact that the region is seeking food security and seeking uh, good quality protein that Australia can provide. Uh, And the added bonus is we have the best animal welfare standards in the world. Uh, And that's what the government is looking to throw away. So, no, I I think this this only highlights the importance of our industry, Belinda. Uh, And I think it also highlights the professionalism that we have, that we can continue to make appropriate assessments about where and when we trade. uh, And that'll be an ongoing thing that the industry works through. Mark, good to talk to you. Thank you. Absolute pleasure, Belinda. Cheers. Mark Harvey Sutton, he is the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council, just going through the very latest on that shipment of sheep and cattle that was destined for the Middle East. It's now on its way back to Australia, somewhere there in the Indian Ocean.
um, after being diverted from travelling through the Red Sea due to the region's deteriorating security situation. Should arrive back in Australia. Not sure where, which port, but in about a week's time. Uh, And before that, heard from the Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt, just saying that the welfare of the livestock on board the ship is the top priority. And Peter in Albany was listening very closely to Murray Watt's words. And on text, he says, the Federal Minister mentioned animal welfare of both sheep and cattle, which sounds like behind the scenes, Labor plans to ban both the live sheep and cattle trade. That will kill all food production in the northern half of Australia and cause an unprecedented land care disaster if pastoral stations close. When it comes to WA Labor, I don't trust their words one bit. Thank you, Peter. In Albany, the text is 0448 922604. 21 past 12. You're with Belinda Varaschetti on The Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. Well, so many Western Australian wheat belt homes and businesses are still without power today after storms last Tuesday and Wednesday took out steel transmission towers and major power lines between Perth and Kalgoorlie. Power is back on in Kalgoorlie and the Goldfields region, but more than 2,000 Western Power customers was still waiting for power last night. Western Power is saying that over the weekend, its crews managed to restore power to 2,700 homes and businesses, but around 1,100 still don't have power. The largest outage is in Wongan Hills, where some bushfire recovery work is being done. Lake Grace was reconnected on Friday, but not for Natalie Gambuti, who lives on a farm about 20 kilometres out of the town. She runs a catering business and is very frustrated that after six days, she still doesn't know when the power will be restored. Um, every time you go on and get an update, it says there is power outages and we blah, blah, blah. And um, we don't have the restoration period is unknown. So how are you managing, Natalie? Do you have a generator? Um, I do have a generator. It runs our house. I was very lucky to have the um, people who own the place put a, a gen set plug in only October, end of October, which we've used four times since then. And the thing we have is not everybody has a generator to run everything. Um, you've got elderly that have no form of any cooling or their fridge and freezers. Most people at this time of year have full freezers. They've done a kill or they've you know, got a heap of supplies and it's just not good enough. It's 2024. And so I guess that's the, the, the main reason for you as well is to keep those freezers running because I understand you run a catering business. I do and okay. I have two 500, two 500 litres freezers full which we've been running a generator as much as we can on it but I'm going to have to throw out all the stuff that I won't be able to use like my breads and rolls and that sort of stuff. So it's very disappointing okay. that... Um, this day and age, we're still having these issues. Uh, and, and Natalie, I'm assuming, you know, that costs money and uh, obviously you can't fulfil your orders. No, no. Um, and, you know, the $240 payment that you're getting from Western Power, that we've already used that for our generator fuel. So, so that doesn't what's even... that $240 going to give us? Nothing. Uh, how, how, how are people faring out there? You said, you know, not everyone has a generator and it's been pretty hot. Is everyone looking out for everyone, checking on neighbours? 
Yep, there's, um, I've heard uh, this morning that there's a young bloke who's going, well, he's not probably so young, but he's going around and filling up about 23 generators to make sure that they keep running. So that's one thing. And then you've got other people that have delivered fuel to the hospital when they were requiring it. Um, and just, just things like that. And, you know, when you went to the shop, the shop has its own generator, which is fantastic. But if you wanted to get fuel, the only fuel available was from the Liberty, which is great that he has his own generator, but there was, the Telstra was down. There was no phone coverage. There was no FPOS, so it all had to be cash. So I don't know about you, I have a little bit of cash hanging around, but I don't have a lot and no, other most, people don't yeah. have any at all. And then, so they were either having to pay cash and if they didn't, I know that there were some fuel stations going, okay, well, we'll do an IOU and trust that you'll yep. return and pay me. Or we'll do a direct debit, but if you're at home and you've got Wi-Fi and you have a generator, you, your Wi-Fi can run. But if it's not, you you know, we had ta- um, all our telephone towers were down. Um, they've got battery backup, but it didn't last very long. So what do you reckon the fuel will cost you? Because, again, $240 for your, non-per- your perishable items. Um, you know, is there a better way to compensate? Well, I, you know, we're spending probably with the generators that we, the two generators that we have, we're spending $80 a day because we're paying it for nearly $2 a litre. So it's $1.97 at one place and $1.81 at the other. But um, you're still having to find that money to pay for that fuel. So I feel every day that there's no power, it should be $240 every day that there's no power Hmm. because you're going to have all those stuff in your freezers and your fridges, which you can't use, and you've got to replenish all that. And I don't know if anybody else has been shopping lately, but I know how much it costs. It's not cheap, that's for sure. And what? it's not cheap. So maybe maybe they need to look into that sort of thing. Or give a, a huge credit on your on your power when you've got it, of course. But, you know, it's, it's 2024, as I said before, and we're having these um, issues and a lot of the um, – Infrastructure is old and there's not enough crews. There was crews sent from everybody everywhere else down to Kalgoorlie to sort that out. And, you know, I just can't understand it that they can't offer us a they, – they charge us enough for our power. So why can't you fulfil it? You know, yeah, this is I mean, the downfall of it all. And people saying, look, that's why we need underground power incredibly expensive to do that statewide. I appreciate that. And others on the text line saying, well, that's why maybe these towns need their own independent supplies, power supplies. Well, we used to have a a power station in town and they removed it when the um, power was put on. So maybe they need to look at, um, but you see, not everybody lives close enough to town or on that town grid to get the power. Mm, So, and most farmers have a generator. They've just kept it just in case, which is fantastic. But, I'm talking about other people that don't have that opportunity. You've got shearing contractors. They may have one or two that they could use at a shed. So there you've got other people not being able to do their job. You've got cafes can't open, all those sort of things. And that's a cost to everybody else, you know, not to the government. It's not to Western Power. There's no cost there. Natalie Gambuti, who lives on a farm about 20 kilometres out of Lake Grace, which is about 350 kilometres southeast of Perth, 
and she was speaking to Nadia Mitsopoulos. Old John on the text says, This extended power outage proves the point that we must not become a cashless society. The businesses in the Perth Hills, Wheatbelt and Goldfields are hamstrung to conduct transactions, etc. Um, cafes not helped by staff source from a generation who are not taught mental arithmetic. Thank you, old John. Appreciate that. 0448 922604. And curious to know, what would you suggest should be done to prevent lengthy power and telecommunication outages in the future? Shoot me through a text, 0448 922604. Well, Natalie touched on the problem of telecommunications not being fully restored in some places, but Telstra is saying all but seven base station sites are now back up and running. Those still affected are Cranbrook, Manmanning, Mount Sheridan, Mount Palmer, Muckenbuden, North Tamman and Quailagetting. At one stage last week, 198 mobile sites were down and in areas like Lake Grace, people couldn't even make an emergency triple zero call. Boyd Brown is Telstra's regional manager who says with most power being restored, their crews are now dealing with some specific tricky problems. The seven that we've got left now, they've actually uh, they've actually got damage. Uh, so we've attended them, but there's uh, replacement equipment required, so it'll require a re-attendance to, to fix that. I think the lightning was the thing that did the, the damage. You know, it's fried a few things, so there's a little bit of work uh, to be done, but we'll be hoping to get those back up and running as quick as possible. So it's not as simple as just putting generators there and recharging the batteries? Look, no, um, no, they haven't come back up, so it does require some additional work. And just to clear that point up too, there's been there's been a bit of a misunderstanding that we just needed to uh, to get out there and put generators to all sites. You know, we've still got generators to a large number, and then obviously there's a refuelling program, and there's a lot of work done to make sure that the sites stay up. But the thing was, because this outage was so widespread and had such a big impact. We had to actually attend, first of all, you know, key network transmission sites and then get to the mobile sites after that. You know, we, and we prioritise, like other businesses would do and Western Power have been doing, you prioritise to the communities that had combined impact to both fixed and mobile services and, you know, kind of go through, go through the list. Really pleased to say there's been a lot of work done to get that number, you know, that big number down so quickly. So, um, yeah, big praise to everybody that's been working on the restoration efforts. But obviously still, you know, we're apologetic to the to the community and the impact that it's had, you know, over the last few days whilst uh, services in some, in some places have been unavailable or limited. Well, Boyd, as you're aware, many farmers use their own generators when the power goes down. But in Lake Grace last week, you couldn't ring triple zero. What's the story there? Lake Grace uh, was, a, uh, was a location that uh, didn't have fixed or mobile services. I think that got restored from memory Friday... Friday evening, that was one that was a priority because also, too, the, from a medical point of view, they were, had limited connectivity. I think they were relying on some satellite phones, so that became a priority to get that one to get that one reconnected. So please, please, when that came back online. So is it difficult to coordinate between Telstra, Optus and the relevant stakeholders to get more and better backup, you know, so that people do have triple zero in the future? 
Look, triple zero will work. So if, if, you know, say in this case, the Telstra network was down, if one of the other networks was operating, the call will go through on the other, uh, net, on the other network. In cases like this where the networks from the, from the other providers is quite limited, it meant that there were areas where triple zero calls potentially could not go through, and that was both on a fixed line uh, and, and then the mobile. In that instance, you know, that's obviously kind of worst-case scenario. We, you know, community then obviously need to work in with the local government and police, you know, if there's anything required and do it that way. But these a huge priority to get the network up, and that's where we did focus, and that's where I'm pleased to say we've, you know, we're just on the tail of it now. Regional General Manager for Telstra in WA, Boyd Brown, speaking to Glenn Barnden. 27 to 1 here on the country hour. Herlin Kaur in the studio. What's making the headlines? Good afternoon, Belinda. In the headlines, the Prime Minister has defended calling government MPs to Canberra ahead of the parliamentary year to discuss cost of living relief. The opposition has criticised the cost of bringing the 103-member Labor caucus to Canberra for Wednesday's meeting. But Anthony Albanese says some MPs will already be in the capital. Two men in their 20s have died in a crash in Perth southeast. Police say the pair were travelling along Tonkin Highway in Gosnells when the vehicle left the road and hit a tree before catching fire in the early hours of Sunday morning. The driver and passenger died at the scene. And a remote Northern Territory local says houses have been inundated and some medically at-risk residents evacuated following flooding in the region. Timber Creek near the Western Australian border has received four. 170 millimetres in eight days. The Victoria River has started to recede following two days of relief. More news coming up at one. Helen, thank you so much for that. We'll look at those rainfall figures in a little more detail too shortly. Uh, Richard Hudson is back from leave, so he'll go through those details and hopefully get an update on the situation from the Bureau shortly. Firstly, though, this text just through saying that I think the Western Power crews are to be commended on their efforts so far. It's not their fault that the storms or fires cause so much damage. It's unfortunate that people are without power, but take it easy on the crews out there doing their best to get the power in as soon as possible. It's a good point. Thank you so much for that. The text is 0448 922 Between now and the news at one o'clock, it is off to Muche today for the results of the cattle market and shortly taking a look at that storm damage uh, through parts of the wheat belt too. And of course, don't miss that evacuation story uh, from the truckie from the NT trying to get all the way home to... Bustleton, I think it is where he lives, and some of the challenges with that journey with all the rain that's coming through. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology, Angeline Prasad with you this afternoon. And uh, let's start in the north of the state. So taking a look at northern and eastern parts firstly, where is that tropical low? We'll get to the rainfall figures, which have already been quite a few around parts of the Kimberley, but where is that low going to track and is it going to bring much more rain? Good afternoon, Belle. Yes, it's there's a lot happening across the north of the state. So the low is located uh, uh, to the south of Halls Creek at the moment. So I expect it to track um, towards the west-southwest. So may enter the north interior uh, later today or is already uh, entering the north interior at the moment. So... Um, it was located over the southeast of the Kimberley. 
it hasn't produced as much rain as we were thinking over the last 24 hours. Um, there is a severe weather warning out for it. There's a flood watch out for large areas of the north interior, southern parts of the Kimberley, southern and eastern parts of the Kimberley, and also extending into the eastern parts of the Pilbara. Um, there is a chance that in the next uh, 6 to 12 hours or 6 to 9 hours, it's possible we may see those heavier falls that we're predicting. So, so the severe weather warning is still talking about the potential for locally heavy falls, uh, especially across the far southeast of the Kimberley, so southeast of Halls Creek and uh, and the Fitzroy uh, River crossing. And those heavy falls may extend into the northern parts of the interior. As that low moves uh, west, southwest uh, for the remainder of today, especially through that, through that evening and overnight period, may lose that intensity. Uh, it is expected to move into the Pilbara uh, tomorrow. It has been very hot across the Pilbara uh, for the last few months. We've seen some intense heat wave conditions across the state, uh, across the district. Um, we haven't really seen the rain we normally see during summer across the Pilbara. Lots of gusty thunderstorms, but very little rainfall associated with uh, with those thunderstorms over the last couple of months. This tropical low, uh, as it moves towards the southwest, um, will bring uh, that rainfall for one thing, there's still going to be a fair amount of rainfall associated with it. So over the next 24 hours, potentially 40 to 80 millimeters, we could see isolated heavier falls, 100 to 160, sort of uh, south of uh, or around Fitzroy and south of Halls Creek into the northern interior. Tomorrow, those heavier falls are going to contract into this um, uh, to the uh, southwest of the Fitzroy and ex and contract across north interior into uh, western parts of the north interior, but those heavy falls are importantly going to uh, extend into the eastern parts of the Pilbara. So places like Telfar might start to see sort of rainfall in that 30 to 70 millimeters, and they could be isolated heavier falls, 70 to 100 millimeters. So we're finally going to see some rain uh, initially over the eastern Pilbara, but that rain is likely to extend into uh, into central uh, and uh, sort of central western parts of uh, the Pilbara on Wednesday. And potentially those heavy falls may continue and extend to Marble Bar and um, uh, other places sort of south of Marble, Marble Bar, Panawanica, Newman. Um, so the heavy falls are going to do a couple of things. Firstly, they will help to ease the heat wave conditions. So for the next couple of days, we are going to see those very hot temperatures persist across, especially across the western parts of the Pilbara. Um, so we have had, uh, we have seen a few areas, um, especially around Nanutara, Emu Creeks, um, Parabadu, sort of nudging towards the 50 degree temperature mark, sort of staying in that high 40s for multiple days. Uh, Parabadu has broken its annual annual record twice uh, uh, over the weekend. So very hot, uh, unusually hot temperatures. So firstly, the rainfall is going to help ease those severe to extreme heat wave conditions. So uh, we're expecting the, the heat wave conditions to ease around midweek across western parts of the Pilbara. Secondly, um, the ground is baked uh, dry and it's very hot. So flash flooding is a big risk uh, over the next 24 to 48 hours across the Pilbara. Um, and if we do see those persistent, you know, 100 millimeter per day rainfall, um, uh, we could potentially see some uh, riverine uh, rises as well. So there are a couple of uh, catchments uh, that are in under flood watch uh, through the eastern parts of the Pilbara. And we'll be seeing how this low uh, develops as it translates further west. Um, it's a bit hard to say 
compare with any tropical lows how much rain it will dump uh, across the landscape. Uh, but And uh, the main problem is it's, potent- it's possible that we may not have recorded the heaviest falls simply because there's a lack of rain gauges across that far southeast of the Kimberley and the northern parts of the interior. So there's potentially those heavy falls still occurring. So it's uh, something to keep in mind as the system heads towards the southwest. Uh, we could still see those very heavy rainfall uh, totals uh, over the next few days uh, through those areas. And is it expected to bring any rain into parts of the south? West Land Division? Good question, Bal. So um, later in the week, there's a fair amount of uncertainty what this tropical load will do. It is it could potentially move uh, closer to the Pilbara coast. So if you look at the uh, tropical cyclone uh, outlook, for example, we do have it at, as as uh, as as low on Thursday and Friday. The risk of it actually moving offshore has decreased quite considerably. So it may become slow moving over the uh, uh, close to the Pilbara coast, or it may curve towards the south and stay inland across the Pilbara. Uh, we do have an upper trough uh, arriving over southern W later in the week, so it is going to pick up a lot of the tropical moisture that this low is bringing to the Pilbara and extend it into the northeastern parts of the Gascoigne, uh, the south interior, and also the eastern parts of the gold fields. It has been very hot uh, through these areas as well. Um, we've uh, we've seen Kalgoorlie uh, uh, potentially getting up to 43 degrees today. And again, those uh, Increasing cloud and that rain should help ease the heat wave conditions through these areas. But also there is that risk that we could see those heavy falls that Pilbara experiences around Midmik extend into the uh, northeastern parts of the Gascoigne, so northeast of about Mikathara and to the east of Kalgoorlie uh, and perhaps even into the Eukla, uh, eastern parts of the Eukla and south interior later in the week, um, sort of Wednesday, later Wednesday into Thursday and Friday. And anything to highlight in particular about the Southwest Land Division this afternoon for the next couple of days? Um, it's been it's going to be pretty mild across the Southwest Land Division. We've had a couple of fires along that uh, south coast or southern district. So there's a bit of smoke that's wafting for the north. But apart from that, it's going to be pretty good pretty good weather over the next couple of days. However, later in the week, as we see a new ridge uh, form up across uh, southern WA, we'll see warmer conditions return. So we will see elevated fire dangers return, especially to central west and maybe the northern parts of uh, lower west. So... Uh, uh, Australia Day, for example, is going to be quite warm um, and those those warm conditions may continue into Saturday. It's a bit of an elevated bushfire risk on those two days, but we do see a cooler change return again uh, from Sunday. And, and just running through the warnings for this afternoon. Um, there's a fair few warnings out uh, Belinda. So uh, starting off uh, with, uh, with the flood watch, a flood watch is current for the East Kimberley, Fitzroy, Sandy Desert, Degray River and Sturt Creek District. Uh, we've had um, a, a minor flood warning uh, for the Ord River and an initial minor flood warning has been issued uh, for the Fitzroy. There's a fire weather warning out for the Ashburton Coast and Exmouth Coast, uh, Gulf Coast uh, fire weather warnings. And uh, obviously there's the severe weather warning for parts of the Kimberley, Pilbara and North Interior Districts. We've got a heat wave warning out. Uh, extreme heat wave conditions of Pilbara and Gascoigne and a severe heat wave warning for Goldfields and South Interior District. And also we've got uh, a few um, 
coastal wind warnings out for some of our coastal waters. Ange, there's a bit there. So thank you so much for going through all those details. It is 16 to 1. Richard Hudson is back and his first job is to go through the rainfall figures. Yeah, and the main region obviously is in the Kimberley, as uh, Ange was just talking about. I'll do them all because some parts of the Western Kimberley are actually in need of this rain. So there's a bit of interest in what's coming and what's fallen. Bedford Downs Airstrip had 63, Billaluna 29, Charnley River 18, Drysdale River Station 5, Ellenbray had the same, Fitzroy Crossing 38, Flora Valley 34, Fossil Downs 26, Gibb River 25, Halls Creek actually only got 146. I'm not sure who wrote your T's, but uh, anyway, hopeless. Kachana 37, Kingston Rest 41, Kununurra had 61, and at the checkpoint 40, and in the township only 9. Lake Argyle Resort 29, Lansdowne 85, Leopold Downs 13, Marion Downs 68, Mullabulla Airstrip 126, Mount Amherst 107, Mount Barnett 38. Mount House Airstrip 60, Mount Krause 85, Mount Winifred 90, Nicholson 97, Old Mornington Homestead 115, Ruby Plains 85, Siddons Creek 57 and Yulumboo had 140. And then in the Pilbara, it was only Red Hill with 12. Nowhere else uh, got any rain. And there was nothing recorded in the other northern and eastern forecast districts. And the most rainfall in the whole of the Southwest Land Division was one mill at the Duke. Uh, there is a... Uh, fire warning and a uh, total fire ban in place today. So this is for the Pilbara region. So that affects the Ashburton and Exmouth shires. So, of course, you know that during a total fire ban, you can't light, maintain or use any fires in the open air and you can't carry out any activity that could start a fire. So that includes uh, cooking, camping, hot work, such as grinding, welding and gas cutting. Um, and if you're after more information on total fire bans, just go to the Emergency WA website. Easy to find. As, um, as you just heard, those storms that ripped through the southern half of the state last week, they're continuing to cause all sorts of power and telecommunications problems. They've been sort of described as tornadoes or mini cyclones. I was chatting to Royce Taylor, who farms at Lake Grace this morning, and uh, one of those storms ripped through his property. He wasn't even there. He was driving on his way home, so he's yet to see all the damage. But uh, John Waters farms about 300 kilometres southeast of Perth near Coolan, and he reckons he's never seen like the destruction that was caused by the storm that went through his place. We were not at home, but we were on our way home and we got home about half an hour after the storm went through. And when we drove in our driveway, there was just carnage trees everywhere and we couldn't actually get in the driveway. We had to shift trees to get in the driveway. We could see our garage door was halfway towards the road from our, from our house and that's when we realised we had a fair bit of damage. So you... Not weren't home, but were you aware that a storm was, was coming? Did you see any wind? Was it windy? From a distance, we were coming home from Narragin, so from a distance we could just see black clouds in the distance, but neighbours said it looked really nasty here and, and you know, they could see that it was, it was terrible underneath the storm, so dust storms and that. And then we've seen a few trees down on the way home, but nothing like what when we got home. When we got home, it was, yeah... I've never seen anything like it, tell the truth. Yeah, what's the damage to your place? Well, we've lost probably three sheds, um, 
across the farm, a roof off an old house, another shed's damaged from tin flying through the air and going through the walls, uh, and then i got no idea how many kilometres of fencing. So every fence line that's on the south side of trees is basically on the ground and, um, yeah, where do we start? Start one place and head to the other, I suppose, other end. That sounds daunting. This is Wednesday. What have you been doing since then? Uh, since Wednesday, we've been just cleaning up around the houses and making sure that all the sheds are secure and safe and no more tins flying around. We've picked up all the tin from the sheds and and then we've um, been cutting up trees and, you know, piling them all up for later on, but trying to stand fences up for sheep just so the sheep can't get out and basically just make the house yard look presentable for a start so so we're not looking at it every day. Is your house still watertight? Uh, I don't know how our house survived because we've got quite a large veranda on the front and I thought that would have been gone but because the garage doors and everything were gone but no, the house is nothing wrong with it. That is very lucky. Was there rain with the wind? Uh, yes, we got approximately 15 to 17 mils in the gauges that were left around the farm. Um, we must have got some hail because there's been elsinite damage done, you know, with hail going through it and um, on one place. The main rain must have been coming in horizontal as we had a like a fry pan for the cat feed and that had an inch of water in it so and that was 10 feet in from the edge of the veranda so I'd say it was pretty horizontal the rain. It sounds extraordinary especially as you could see it was it like a really tight cell maybe like a tornado type system? Well I would say it was similar to a tornado because some of the sheds have gone sideways and one shed that's gone is basically an open shed each end, and but the winds come from a side-on angle where the direction of the trees is different to that. So I'd say it was some sort of tornado, but I don't think it was just small because our farm's approximately 15 kilometres long and 14 kilometres of it's got damage. So I'm thinking it was in the middle was the worst, there's middle seven kilometres. The, the roads are completely laden with trees, there's trees everywhere every 20 meters for five kilometers five to seven kilometers how long do you think it's going to take to to restore things back to normal um most of this year i'd imagine with fence lines and things or or maybe even longer i've got no idea how many kilometers of fencing we have to do so i haven't actually had a chance to drive around every paddock and have a look South Coolant farmer with some work ahead of him by the sounds of things, John Waters, talking to Lucinda Jose about damage caused by that storm that went through his property last week. Nine minutes to one. Well, there's been some major flooding in the Northern Territory over the weekend, with Highway 1 still closed between Catherine and Kununurra. Floodwaters have gone through the Vic River Roadhouse about 300 kilometres from the WA border, and yesterday... There were quite a few truck drivers evacuated from that area. One of them was WA truckie Max Henderson. Uh, yesterday morning uh, I was scheduled to fly out and um, the chopper came in around 7 o'clock Darwin time and it was a bit of a mad scramble. Five of us uh, got on it and they, we were evacuated to Catherine 
leaving a further five down there uh, on site, which um, three of them were truck drivers, one guy with a caravan and another guy with a camper trailer uh, and four dogs. I've seen your video, Max, of getting flown out, getting evacuated, and you can you can yeah. see the trucks parked up on the highway. How are you feeling about the trucks? Oh, yeah, mate. Well, how, do you, how do you reckon that you've got $480,000 worth of truck there plus your trailers and freight? Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty daunting, mate. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it's replaceable, sort of. We aren't. And from the time we moved from the roadhouse, which was a mad scramble on Saturday morning because the water had come around the back of us, and then started flowing through the the parking bay where we were parked. So we we got it up there and um, pretty quick. And that that was the highest ground we could um, scatter to. Uh, and from there, it's just been a, a wait and stay. But since the roadhouse shut down, we lost all amenities, uh, toilets, showers, mm-hmm. and Wi-Fi. So we really become isolated. A couple of the trucks had. Um, Sat phones, uh, but they were hit and miss. Um, sat phones are really a thing of the past now. Yeah, a bit of cloudy and, weather, and they're not much flash. Yeah, are they? they aren't, mate. I, uh, I think we've already got a Starlink going to go into ours. But uh, anyway, yeah. So that that's sort of what happened, and and from that time on, mate. Once we lost all sort of uh, sanitary type accommodation it become a different issue you know by the time i got home i hadn't showered for three days and stuff like that um the bonus was um that one of the the triples one of the mclean's trailers had a freezer pan on it that was full of um, supplies for timber creek so uh, as our supplies ran out we um, borrowed some from that under instruction so we had plenty of food there but uh it was more the sanitary type things and and the fact that that i i'd been there since tuesday uh and i normally i normally get stuck most times most times four to five days and then you're off and running so you, you know so i've always got four or five days worth of goodies but um and, and so have, most have you ever boys. been evacuated before no never mate no never that's what i say i've been um i've I've been stuck on the rivers, and it might be one day, two days, uh, but like most of them, uh, they come up and go down. But to be there for five days already with the water still rising and the thought of being there for another two weeks, I would think, before anything starts opening up, is not not doable, mate. No, it's just just not good enough. So you've got to sacrifice uh, your truck for... uh, for a bit of living, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so you're now back in your hometown of Bustleton, in the bottom of yes. WA. <laughs> yeah, we're thousands of kilometres away from the Vic River. What's the plan from here? Well, I've just got to ride it out, Matt. Uh, like anyone else that gets flown out of there, we uh, relying purely on main roads now uh, to monitor the situation closely and, soon as practicable, give us notification to get them vehicles out of there now for me it'll be a two-way option uh, as to which area opens first and 
uh, um, whether I come back through Catherine and come home through South Australia like I did last year, um, because I think that will open before the Timber Creek. But, yeah, so it's just a waiting game, Matt, uh, and I would like to think that all my co-drivers up there um, are okay and, and sort of get their marching orders to go out of there and um, just, yeah, get, get away from it. The other, other issue we had, Matt, there was a few crocs oh. starting to get around. Um, there was one in the car park uh, when we were hooking up trailers to evacuate Saturday morning and then where we parked the trucks, you can see the trucks parked on the road to the left of them, there was a couple of small ones swimming around there. So as the water comes up, it gets a bit nervous uh, when you're climbing in and out of them at night. So that that's just another issue to deal with. Uh, you don't uh, get that in Bustleton? Mm-mm. No, you don't, mate. You do not. You get uh, you get a nice beach. And, a, and, well, what I experienced this morning was far better than I've had for the last seven days. <laughs> what an experience. WA-based truck driver Max Henderson speaking to Matt Brown. It is three minutes to one to the markets and almost 1,300 head of cattle sold at the Mouchet sale yards this morning. So numbers up about 160 on last week, but no calves on offer today. Terry Birkin's been keeping an eye on the prices for you. Hello, Terry. Hi, Belinda. It was a similar sale to last week, both in volume and quality. Last rise of young yearlings and weaners sourced mainly from local areas and good supplies of finished heavy cattle from all areas were on offer. Light weaner steers were back another 8 to 10 cents, while cars with more weight remained firm. Cows across the board lifted 15 to 20 cents, with several regular buyers who were absent last week were back on the rail today. Light veal steers destined for the paddock started from 140 cents and with more cover up to 262 cents, while the heifers ranged from 116 to 224 cents a kilo. Local yearling steers sold from 200 to 246 cents, while yearling heifers made 140 to 202 cents a kilo. Pastoral steer cars sold from 60 cents up to 220 cents with bigger and better frames, while pastoral heifers were difficult to sell without weight, ranging from 5 cents to 120 cents, and with weight and cover up to 188 cents a kilo. Grown steers sold from 150 to 230 cents, while grown heifers made 150 to 180 cents a kilo. Store cows returned 10 cents up to 140 cents, while medium cows sold to 192 cents, and heavy cows realised 190 cents a kilo. Export bulls were equal to last week's rates, selling from 100 cents to 228 cents, and mature bulls from 130 to 174 cents a kilo. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Recording Service. Thanks so much for that, Terry. Just about a minute away from the news at one. Let's get to some of these texts coming through in response to the storms, the power outages, etc. This one from a farmer in Northampton who says in 2021, when Cyclone Saroja damaged the power network, we went 13 weeks with no power. We were proactive and had diesel generated power as a backup to run the farm. Our insurance policy covered the diesel and operation of the generator. This was a great outcome and possibly others need a similar insurance policy to cover costs. Quinton was also listening very closely to Boyd Brown from Telstra and Quinton says, Boyd at his best. He's been the king of diversion for some years now. His refusal to address communication issues in regional areas is obvious. 
Local governments have been willing to invest in infrastructure and he just diverts the conversation. And this from Jim, like the late Grace Lady said, the local power station should have kept operational instead of centralising everything to Perth. And this too from Stuart, I've been away from my work Home in Marvel Lock, I have two 150-litre freezers full of food. Not looking forward to getting back today. One fridge is full. Go to the Western Power site, Stuart. There is some compensation available. Just fill out the form. One o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.